Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. It's great to see all of you here tonight. Uh, On behalf of the Candeo family, uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Many of you probably in town, congratulations for making it one. Um, You likely weren't flying in on American. Our neighbor has been stuck in Florida uh, for like five days. And so she's suffering for Jesus down there, and that's all right. But... But it is great to see all of you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, this evening. Uh, the scripture that we are going to be looking at tonight um, is perhaps probably the most famous scripture, Christmas passage in all the Bible, and that is Luke chapter 2. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you go, I don't know what Luke 2 is. Um, you probably actually do. And the reason why it's so famous and familiar is because for many, many years, many of us have had this scripture read over us in our living rooms as Charlie Brown has been standing on stage, much a stage like this, and in an exasperated tone has asked the question, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And since 1965, Sweet Linus has picked up his blankie and walked to center stage as the spotlight comes on him, and he has recited Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. What we get at the beginning of the account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 is not, it does not start off as in a land far, far away. It doesn't start off as once upon a time, but instead it starts off, Luke chapter 2 verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, some might say that the gospel accounts are nothing more than myths or maybe maybe helpful fables, right? That, That these accounts that we see in Scripture, they might be helpful in the same way that Aesop's fables are helpful to you, that they're not really real, but they kind of communicate some general truths that are helpful for you in living your life in, in maybe an appropriate way. They're kind of helpful, but they're not true. But the problem with that view of the Gospels, of the Gospel accounts, that they're just myths and fables, the problem with that is that the Gospel accounts are much too detailed to actually be ancient fiction. They're much too detailed because that kind of fiction hadn't been invented yet. You you see, somewhere around the 18th century, there came a kind of writing that developed in the West that we'll call realistic fiction. And what realistic fiction is, it's a kind of fiction that reads like history because it's so incredibly detailed in its description of the people and the places and the things taking place and the events that are happening. I'll give you an example. Uh, last Christmas, my, my Christmas break goal was to read through the Lord of the Rings series. Now, just watch the movies. I was going to read the books and then watch the movies as I read the books. So I was reading through the Lord of the Rings series, and uh, we had a college student living with us at the time, and I told him, I'm, I'm reading through the Lord of the Rings series now. And he looks at me and he goes, man, I tried doing that, and then it started to feel like I was reading about taxes And I knew exactly what he meant, you know, because I was reading through it. And what he meant was, like, there are so many details. 
all of these details. Don't get me wrong, the books are great. I, I prefer the books over the movies. The movies did a great job as well, but there's so many details, like the rustling of the trees and the sound of the hooves of the ring race as they're, as they're you know, going by and Frodo and his friends are down you know, in, the, in the gully and they're waiting and they're in the darkness, the cloak of darkness. Then you get to the shadows and the whispers and Fanghorn Forest and all of the details, details after details after details. As I'm watching the movies, the movies are long. And as I'm watching the movies, I'm, I keep turning to my wife saying, this is going so incredibly fast. She's like, this is a three-hour movie. How is this fast? I'm like, if you've read the books, not nearly as fast. Why? Because of all the details. But you see, ancient myths weren't like that. C.S. Lewis, who was a professor at Oxford and Cambridge, who was actually friends with Tolkien, by the way, he wrote this of the gospel accounts. He says this, he says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. One, either they are historical accounts or some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. He's a professor. He gets to be a little snarky, right? But you get the point. In other words, what he is saying is that if the Gospels were written as myths, then they were the first and last expression of this style of writing until the 18th century. But who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do is not a myth and it is not a fable, but instead it's a historical event that took place at a particular time in those days. He came at a particular time and not only that, he came in a particular place. Look at verses four and five. They'll be up on the screen for you. It says this. It says, Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Now, lest we think that, that Jesus being born in Bethlehem is simply like a logistical detail that Luke is inserting into the narrative, Micah chapter 5, way back in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 tells a different story when the prophet foretells this, says Bethlehem Ephrata. Ephrata is like the district of Bethlehem, the district where King David was actually born. Bethlehem Ephrata, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus wasn't randomly born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem because God called his shot many, many, many years beforehand and ordained that Jesus would be born at this time in this place. So he came at a particular time. And he came in a particular place. And notice this, he came in a particular way. Verses six and seven. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him 
tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I think we kind of read past this. Maybe you know the story. But this is ridiculous. The way that Jesus was born makes absolutely no sense. And here's why. Because we just saw that in Micah chapter 5, that God foretold that the Savior of the world, that the Messiah of Israel would come in this way and be born in this place, that God had called his shot many, many years beforehand. So why in the world? Here's the big question. Why in the world would God orchestrate all of this to take place at this time and in this way and not make sure that there were housing arrangements, that the housing arrangements were taken care of for his son to be born? Why? It'd be like if during the World Cup, you wanted to go to Qatar and watch the, watch the you know, the games in person, it'd be like you bought your plane tickets, you took off work, you made all the arrangements, you packed your bag, you got your tickets for the games themselves, you have your plane tickets, you have your game tickets, all these things, you plan everything down to the last detail, and then you get there and you go, ah, I totally forgot, where are we going to stay? Like, if you had friends who did that, you go, they're pretty dumb. Those are dumb friends. They deserve to live on the streets for the whole time that they're there, right? It's like, you knew, you planned this out. Why didn't you think about where you were going to stay? So how in the world, how in all of God's infinite wisdom could he have missed to, to arrange for a place for his son to be born? But could it be, could it be that this wasn't a missed detail? Could it be that Caesar didn't make a random decree and that Jesus wasn't born in a random town in a random manger? Could it be that God orchestrated, that God wanted Jesus to be born at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular way, in order to communicate a particular message? Could it be that how Jesus came was meant to tell us something about who Jesus is for. You see, who gets to hear news first means a, means a big deal to us. Like if someone comes to you and says, I've got big news and I wanted you to be the first to hear it. You kind of sit up a little straighter. You feel a little better about yourself. You're like, oh, big news. And I'm the first. I'm the first to hear it. Like if we hear big news from a close friend over like a post on Facebook, that kind of annoys us, right? This is why maybe when you're telling your friends some big news that you have, you tell them, don't post about this yet. Uh, our, our first nephew, so my sister's, or my sister, my wife's brother, uh, our first nephew, uh, we found out that he was born through her brother's post on Facebook. I thought it was hilarious. My wife did not. Now why? Why didn't she find that funny? Why didn't she find that funny? It's because who gets news first generally indicates something about the relationship between the one giving the news and the one getting the news. And what we have at Christmas 
is at peace on earth and glory in the highest. First came not to kings and palaces or officials in high places, but it first came to shepherds on a hill. Shepherds weren't people of high social status in the ancient world. They weren't powerful. They weren't influential. They weren't educated. They weren't prestigious. They weren't the kind of people that you would expect news like this to first come to. And yet the message of glory in the highest first came to the lowest. Why was Jesus born at this time, in this place, in this way? Why did he come as a baby and why was he born in a manger? Why? Why? It's so that even people like lowly shepherds could come and see. Don't you see? That if Jesus came as a king, that you would need to be a noble to come to him. That if Jesus came as a philosopher, you would need to be intellectual to come to him. That if Jesus came as a general, you would need to be powerful to come to him. But don't you see that while the shepherds couldn't enter the throne room of a king, they couldn't enter the war room of a general, they couldn't enter the classroom of a philosopher, they could enter a manger to come and see. How Jesus came is meant to show us who Jesus is for. Now, what we also see in Luke chapter 2 is we see three responses. Real quick, three responses to the birth of Jesus. First, you have the shepherds. You have glory in the highest coming to those of the lowest. They come and see these guys of low status. They don't really worry about the fact that they're low status, but they hear the message. They rush, and they find the child, and then they turn around, and we see that they tell everyone about what they had just seen. Like, irregardless of their social status. So we have the shepherds. Receive the message, see for themselves, believe it, and in their joy, go and tell everyone about it. We have the shepherds. Then we have Mary, who at this point has a lot to process, right? Have you ever, think about this, no one told Mary that the shepherds were coming. And so here you are in this stable-turned-delivery room, and these big, burly, smelly men come barging in. How would you have felt over at Allen or Covenant, Right? be like, what are you doing? Like, who are you? But they come in and they tell her of this, of these angels coming and basically the shepherds described to Mary, Mary's exact experience when Gabriel came and told her that she was going to become pregnant. We see in verse 19 that she treasures all these things in her heart and meditates on them. So the shepherds joyfully receive and then joyfully declare, Mary treasures all these things in her heart. But then the third response to the birth of Christ, you have the town of Bethlehem. Look at verse 17 and 18. So after seeing them, so that's Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, after seeing them, they, the shepherds, reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard, so the town of Bethlehem, all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Now you might go, well, that seems like a good response, right? They were amazed by it. But notice, you can be amazed by something 
and still not believe it. You can be amazed by really weird things and still not believe it. You see, Bethlehem was amazed. But there is no evidence in the Bible that when the town hears the message, that they are then filled with joy and now welcome in Mary and Joseph with open arms. You see, Jesus doesn't grow up with everyone believing that he is the Messiah. No, he grows up with everyone being incredibly skeptical about his origin. The people were amazed, but they didn't believe. I think one of the things that distracts us often from hearing any message is that we get hung up on the quality of the messenger. We get hung up on the quality of the messenger. Because what we've been conditioned to believe, especially here in the West, we've been conditioned to believe that truth flows from the elites down to everyone else. That if something is to be true, then it needs to come from the experts. That if something is to be true, then it needs to come from the intellectual. That if something is to be true, then it needs to come from the powerful. And so if a message like this would come from someone like that, then it's really easy to dismiss the message because deep down inside, many of us want to be identified with the wise and with the learned, not with the weak and the lowly. If that's you, know that this kind of doubt and this kind of skepticism isn't new, but God's message came at this time, in this place, in this way, because he wants us to see that his kingdom is a shepherd's first kind of kingdom. My guess is that for some of you, if you're really honest with yourself, if you're really honest with yourself, your objection to Christianity, your objection to Christ, is that to be a Christian would mean that you would have to do two things that you're totally unwilling to do. The first thing you would have to do that you're unwilling to do is you would have to admit that you actually have a great spiritual need that you can't meet. And the second thing is that you would have to give up control of your life and give that control over to Jesus Christ as your Lord. Now maybe some of you look at Christianity the way that you look at Linus that old Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown Christmas, the way you look at Linus is that you see Christians and you think that Christianity is just a security blanket. Christians are just like Linus. They just need that thing to hold on to, to feel that's, that's close to them, that helps them feel secure, that they're kind of like a little too weak to walk through life. They're not enlightened enough. They're maybe not scientific enough or strong enough or powerful enough or have enough influence that they need this thing to give them the security that they're looking for when all the other sophisticated people can find it in other places. But you see, the question isn't if you're looking for security somewhere. That's not the question. The question is, where are you looking for your security? 
It isn't whether you want security or not. It's where will you look for your security. You may look at Christians, you may look at Christianity and say, oh, that's, that's just a crutch for the weak. But then what you'll simultaneously do is you'll turn around and find your security in your finances. Isn't that why it's called financial security? And so when you lose your job or when the markets are down, you're shaken to the core. Maybe it's not your finances, maybe it's your health or maybe it's the health of a loved one. So long as you all have your health, so long as I and my loved ones have our health, then things are good. But maybe this year for you, that security has been shaken to the core. Or maybe your security blanket is control. So long as you are able to be in control, so long as you're able to have, you know, you can follow your schedule, everything goes according to plan, you're able to be in control. When you're in control, then you feel safe. You see, you may think that people who need Christ are weak, while at the same time, you fail to recognize the security blankets that you're clinging to as well. But I think Charles Schultz got it right. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that the only time since 1965 that Linus ever drops his security blanket, the only time happens once, is when he's answering Charlie's question about the meaning of Christmas. Go back and watch it. Have you ever noticed that when Linus gets to the part of Luke chapter 2 that says, fear not, the blanket drops. Because when you have the comforting assurance of the presence of Christ, you can let go of the fickle comforts of an unpredictable world. You see, the message of Christmas is that glory in the highest came to the lowest. He didn't come in, an, in armor of steel. He didn't come in robes of splendor, but he came in swaddling clothes so that all who would humbly come can have him as their Lord and Savior. And so quite simply tonight, this Christmas Eve, would you be reminded once again of your great need and God's great gift? Would you be reminded of your great spiritual need and God's great gift in Jesus Christ to meet that need? And would you, like Mary, treasure all these things in your heart? And like the lowly shepherds, would you leave this place praising God and believing on him for what he has done? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, that you would come in this way, not as a king robed in splendor, not as a general with military might, but as a baby in a manger, so that all could come, regardless of status, regardless of position, regardless of strength. 
And Father, I pray for those who have yet to receive your peace, your security in Christ. Will they let go of the fickle comforts of this world and cling to you, Jesus, for the first time. Thank you for coming to earth to save us from our sins. Pray this in your name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.